episode 139. This episode I speak to history professor Daniela McKayhey of Texas Tech about sexism within national Antarctic programs over time. With no further ado, here's the interview. So I'm speaking to Professor Daniela McKayhey at Texas Tech. She teaches British history and the history of science and has published more extensively than anyone else I can I can find on the topics of sexism in Antarctica. And uh, can I just ask, what, what is your personal interest in Antarctica? What led you to this fascination? So um, when people ask me this question, it's always... I get asked it a lot. It's it's often disappointing. It's a sort of disappointing answer. It's an academic interest. Um, I uh, was interested in how um, I was interested in how in the fact that there are scientists who kind of do um, extreme lengths to do research. And my master's thesis was about scientists who experimented on their own bodies, um, and I I was thinking about that, and then the fact that. Um, Antarctica is a place that has been designated as this continent for science, um, but is one that um, I did some research and I found that there had been rather uneven coverage in terms of like treating Antarctica as a place where history is actually done. Um, there hadn't been a lot of work on the history of science in Antarctica. Plenty of stuff on like, um, you know, Scott and Shackleton and all of that, uh, Mawson, um, but like less on the sort of history of science there, um, although there's been some work since then. Um, and so I was like, that'll be me. I, I'm going to be like an explorer and stake my claim um, and uh, do a topic that I'm interested in, um, in terms of like, you know, uh, the, doing science in the sort of extreme settings, but also that like at the time, not that many people have been working on. And have you visited Antarctica yourself? I haven't. Um, I've never been to Antarctica. Uh, there is another Antarctic historian, Adrian Hawkins, at the University of Bristol, who um, about 10 years ago write in, wrote an essay in the Journal for Environmental History called, Have You Been There? Uh, Thoughts on Not Going to Antarctica. Um, because it's a question I get asked a lot, and I'm sure you know Adrian got asked it a lot. Um, and even though going to Antarctica would be incredible. I, you know, would definitely like an opportunity. Um, it would be mostly like a phenomenological experience for me because, you know, there's not libraries in Antarctica. There's not uh, archives there. In general, um, if I'm doing research in for my own work, I, I, I go to New Zealand. I go to the UK. I can go, you know, to Australia, South Africa, Washington, D.C. And... Your papers on sexism in Antarctica, what drew you to that as a topic? So the academic article I wrote about it, um, I guess it came out in the beginning of 2021. Um, I initially was someone who was not that interested in gender in Antarctica. Um, There are other people who are working on it. Uh, Meredith Nash, the sociologist based in um, Australia, has uh, written extensively on it. Um, Hannah Nielsen, um, who's at UTAS, has published a bit on it. Uh, Morgan Sieg, who recently graduated from um, Cambridge, her her PhD was about 
the integration of women into Antarctica. And so I kind of felt like there had been enough work there. And there's another, there's a bunch of earlier work too. There had been enough things done about women in Antarctica. And I was like, I'm not personally interested in that. I want to talk about how science is done in Antarctica. And in the period that I look at, that period is all men. Um, but I would be looking through these, um, I guess, the scientific papers uh, and accounts of people going to Antarctica and such from the 40s, 50s, 60s. And I noticed, you know, especially as if you get into going up to the, say, if you go 40s all the way through 90s, I noticed there is just a lot of, um, for lack of a better word, pornographic material in the archives. Um, so a really, an example that I noted and then kind of, um, ignored for a while was in, um, 1967, the ornithological report, uh, which, you know, it was just a, the British Antarctic survey collected various reports covering different scientific topics, um, at their different stations, right? So ornithology, um, you know, meteorology, glaciology, what have you, right? Um, so in 1967, I saw this ornithology report from the space at Deception Island. Um, and I'm flipping through it. And on the very last page is a picture of a, um, like a picture of a nude woman um, who's like sitting on the beach. And um, there's a caption that says, uh, species unknown. Um, and then um, on the back, somebody else had written uh, probably a blue tit, I think. Um, and something that really struck me about this particular instance is this was a picture of a naked woman um, clipped to a scientific report that made its way from Deception Island back to headquarters, back to the UK. And then, um, and, and people looked at it. And then it was filed in the archives. And um, at no point in this process, by, in 1967, um, when this is a government run, um, this, the British Antarctic Survey is a government organization, at no point in the process did anybody think maybe that should be removed um, before it was archived. And uh, I kept finding more and more examples of this. And I think that the, the specific example that kind of made me hit my tipping point, made me think like, maybe I should write an article about this. Maybe there's something interesting here was um, I was looking for material on the eruption of the volcano at Deception Island. And in the catalog for the British Antarctic Survey, the, it indicated that in one of the on-base magazines um, produced at Faraday, um, so a lot of the different stations, uh, going back to the age of, of Scott and Shackleton, would produce, um, you know, like magazines and newsletters and stuff on base. So uh, according to the catalog, there was an account of the eruption of Deception Island forum um, that was in one of these magazines produced at Faraday. So I go and I pull, I, I ask for this magazine and somebody pulls it out. And in it, there was um, a uh, an account of the eruption of Deception Island, but also like a bunch of clippings of like um, sort of nude or semi-nude women like pasted into this magazine. And um, like there were 
introductions to the men who were there at the time. And like one of the men, and this really struck out to me, was like, you know, it, it said like his likes and dislikes and it, his likes were underage virgins. Um, and so I was like, not exactly appalled, um, but uh, I looked at after seeing this, I started requesting to, to look at other um, base magazines, and this type of thing was everywhere. Um, and so I put together um, some material from Signy, which is the first British station to um, integrate women, and um, Halley, which was the last. And just looking at those stations, um, talked about some of the material that um, I argue led to a um, culture of um, a culture in general at Antarctic stations where women were um, routinely objectified and seen as sexual objects only. And I even have a little um, one to show you. Um, this is actually not from a research station, but uh, this book, um, The Crossing of Antarctica, uh, which came out maybe 10 years ago, um, and it is a photography book about of the images produced during uh, the Commonwealth Transantarctic Expedition, um, so 1956 through 8. Um, and, you know, this book, which is really recent, um, includes this picture of one of the men that sort of proto-photoshopped onto kind of grabbing a woman. And the caption of this picture, which, again, this book is really recent, just says, um, the pilot getting to grips with a model. Um, and so... I saw that this was just this idea of, of women as um, objectified and as treated as sexual objects for the enjoyment of the men there, because this, this kind of proto-photoshopping is really common in um, base magazines, um, felt to me like something um, that should be explored, especially in the British case, since the British Antarctic Survey um, was one of the late, sort of latest or the, the Western countries that, like, integrated women into their service um, much later. Um, the women were not fully integrated into the British Antarctic Survey until 1996. Wow. Sorry, that, that's a lot. No, no, that's a fantastic answer to a question. Um, that's a lot to take in. And in the wake of the articles that you and Meredith, uh, you mentioned her name earlier from Meredith Tasmania. Meredith Nash. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, and other authors have written about this phenomenon. There's been some kind of Hail Mary soul searching going on in the National Science Foundation and the Australian Antarctic Division reviewing attitudes to women. Uh, a friend of mine that I work with on the construction side at the moment went through Antarctic selection with the Australian Antarctic Division and even just that five years ago process they were formally inducting candidates with the mentality that you need a thick skin you need to not take other people's jokes seriously you need to be able to cop their abuse mm. effectively which is a word I think, to me, abuse is deliberately caused unnecessary harm, which, by its own nature, you shouldn't ever have to put up with. So, 
have you been following that sort of process of assessment within those organisations? And if you have, do you think it's going to lead to to meaningful change? Um, well, for your first question, yes, I have to a certain extent been following. I've attended a couple of... Um, I guess the National Science Foundation a couple, maybe like a week ago, held a an event on the problem of sexual harassment uh, in remote field work. And um, I've attended a couple of these types of events before. Um, Morgan Sieg, at, uh, who just recently graduated from Cambridge, um, gave a talk at the International Glaciological Society recently about um, the sort of history of, of this as well. I... Um, the sort of reckoning here is not at all surprising to me. Um, first, in the case of uh, like with the sort of you Me Too uh, kind of movement, hashtag Me Too sort of movement that came out, what was that in 2017? Um, there were many instances of sort of Me Too in Antarctica um, where powerful, I guess, men had were publicly called out for routinely either condoning or um, participating in um, sexual harassment or and even sexual assault as well. Um, the uh, additionally, um, it's not like this has been a secret. Um, you said that your friend uh, was prepared for this type of um, issue already, you know, like you, you need to have a thick skin to go to Antarctica. Um, in 2013, uh, the British Antarctic Survey announced the first uh, woman director, uh, Jane Francis. And um, the British Antarctic Survey has this um, alumni club. It's like a, you know, a club for people who, who were members of the Antarctic Survey over the years and who went to Antarctica, um, who, you know, have been to Antarctica before. They produce a newsletter, um, like a magazine, and that magazine, different from the ones that were produced on base that I mentioned before, um, is circulated to you know members of of the Bass Alumni Club, um, which now includes a lot of women. Um, so in this 2013 magazine, they announced like um, you know we're really delighted to that the new director of Bass is one of our own is um, you know this woman Jane Francis. Um, but on the cover of this magazine is a picture of the model um, Kate Upton, the American model Kate, Kate Upton, kneeling in the snow in a bikini. Um, so afterwards, the, in the, the following issue, the um, editors uh, issued an apology um, that they were sorry if this offended people. And I don't know that it was necessarily intended to be malicious that they were choosing this image to be on the cover of their magazine and the same time they were announcing the first woman director. Um, but it does feel extremely tone deaf that it seems like the culture of being fine with um, the uh, sort of objectification of women and the sort of like in masculinity that you need to embody to go to Antarctica, that you would appreciate this sort of uh, swimsuit woman. Um, it it is really, I think, inundated in the culture and, and people wouldn't, in the, in the case of this 2013 incident, didn't even see that there would have been an issue doing that. Um, so, yeah, I think that this reckoning 
has been a long time coming. I don't think it's surprising. Um, in fact, I've, if anything, I'm a little bit surprised that the British Antarctic, I'm sorry, the, uh, the National Science Foundation, the U.S. Antarctic Program, and the Australian Antarctic Division have taken so long to um, formally acknowledge this, because I think that this was all well known. Um, you know, Meredith Nash, again, had published on this for years before in a in a modern context. She was talking about, and she's a sociologist, you know, my article came out years before this, and that goes up to 1996. Um, so, yeah, it's a very, um, in terms of the future, it, it's hard to know. A cult, it takes a long time for cultures to shift. Um, there was a sense that at one point that maybe the more women that are there, the less this will be a problem. And maybe that's the case, but um, it's there's a lot more women now than there have been, and there's, there's it's still a problem. Um, so yeah, uh, and speaking of Australia, by the way, you said your friend is you know you're based in Australia. Maybe your listeners are in Australia. Um, Australia has a had a very famous. Uh, you've been in Antar you've been working in Antarctica for thirty years. You said um, uh, at Mawson, the Carpenters Hut. Um, was papered over with um, 92 images of uh, porn pinups and like uh, centerfolds from the 1970s and 80s. And um, this remained up there until 2005 when um, a vandal destroyed it, like an unknown vandal destroyed it. Um, so like this is, it's a thing and it's a thing around the world. You still encounter members of the Inari Club, which is a, an alumnus organization for Australian Antarctic Division um, participants who bemoan that as a desecration of a historic site. Um, yeah. yeah. Like you said, it um, takes time to change. But, it takes um, time I'm part to of, change. I'm part of an online Antarctic chat group and this topic has been absolutely um, the hot topic of the last... 12 months on that group and a lot of participants in those dialogues have been wringing their hands and saying yes but what can you do and my answer is invariably listen to victims investigate allegations prosecute crimes and that seems to be too hard in an Antarctic context for a lot of people to grasp but is there anything that prevents, like the, the isolation doesn't prevent legal process, I don't think. Yeah, so I mean, this is actually a problem, I think, in academia in general, and probably in all, um, I imagine it's probably true in the military, and all sort of um, hierarchical structures, number one, and number two, um, male-dominated ones. Um, because the fact of the matter is, unless... Like, you can't go... F People will often want to report this type of thing anonymously, right? Um, and organizations can't really do that much with um, anonymous complaints, right? And if they're going to actually hold someone accountable, they need to, you know, give them the sort of due process. They need to go through all the paperwork. Um, and that is a, a sort of difficult um, situation because um, oftentimes the people in the field, and we'll talk about Antarctica specifically, why not, um, 
the people who they're engaging with that possibly are contributing to an atmosphere where they feel unsafe, um, whether that's unsafe physically because, um, you know, of physical attacks or sort of um, quid pro quo situations, or they feel like it's an uncomfortable environment, um, you know, where people are just fine hanging up their uh, pornography on the walls or asking you, um, like, how often you masturbate, which is something that I found in a 1996 that all the women too were also asked. Um, it's uh, that kind of thing. You're dealing with the people who are engaged in this are number one, sometimes your superiors in terms of like they're your advisors or the, you're, they're the person who's involved in um, logistics or getting funding or what have you to for you to even be there to begin with. Um, or they're your sort of teammates. Um, and I think that in Antarctica, the sort of small group dynamics mean that uh, people feel like if you attack someone that's on your team, and by attack, I mean if you were to make an accusation um, against someone on your team, it's like you don't have a thick enough skin or you are overreading the situation and it could end up having damaging effects on your own career um, for either causing trouble or what have you. So um, it's a real problem. And of course, listening to victims and um, trying to hold people accountable and trying to make these active cultural shifts are important steps. Um, this type of thing is really difficult considering the structure of um, and, and the way Antarctic work is done. You know, it, you have a, a very heavily hierarchical, two very hierarchical um, types of societies, the acad academics and the military coming together, basically, and, you know, creating these very um, extreme environments, not only in terms of, like, ice and snow and cold, but in terms of uh, it's an extreme kind of social environment as well. Um, the, the academic side of things, it just resonates because I've experienced situations in universities where lecturers were sleeping with students mm -hmm. and bringing that up with the department saw me put on the outer. I was the troublemaker. I wasn't, the, I was the problem. And mm. that really stung. So perhaps in the broader context, is there, is there, is there change on the horizon within academic circles? Do you think that will help lead the situation in Antarctica? Because you've got a sort of a microcosm of academia happening in a very remote place. Will the change come from the, the larger community? Well, I think there has been a move recently, um, you know, within the last five years to um, really try and, um, like, I mean, I'm slightly too young to remember when, you know, in the 90s it was seen as maybe funny but acceptable to, to sleep with your students, as long as maybe as long as they're not in your class or something. But um, whereas now I think it's frowned upon to have um, fraternization between faculty and any type of student, grad student, undergrad, what have you. Um, so I do think there is maybe that shift coming along, but at the same time, when it does happen, and it, and it does happen, if you look kind of long-term at the situation, 
again, legally, there's not that much that the university can do. Um, And it's oftentimes what happens is, um, especially if it's like a situation where there's like a, you know, he said, she said, he said, he said situation, um, to just kind of try and keep everything quiet and contained and move on from it. Um, you And then you end up in these situations where, from what I observed in my academic career anyway, which um, maybe is kind of on the shorter side, but like you have a lot of, um, in terms of sexual harassment or what have you, a lot of individuals who will walk right up to the line and even occasionally cross it. But like as long as um, they're not like, as long as they kind of keep on on that side of the line there's not a lot that really can be done and and the woman usually will um look like she's you know just can't keep take a joke or she's you know can't handle being the the attention or what have you um or even maybe that she was asking for it um by being friendly to begin with um, because something that you see a lot is like, you know, when women are friendly, it is, and I think this is more true in Antarctica, it's it's interpreted as them making a a sort of advance. And um, I think you see this even back in the 1940s when um, Jenny Darlington talked about, uh, and I quoted this in the the article that you read, the sort of pop article, um, that the women were res- were seen as responsible for men's contact towards them. Um, I think another reason Antarctica in, and academia, but Antarctica specifically, is is more extreme than than these other settings as well. Is in a regular academic climate, you can have a separation between the personal and your work, right? Like. When I go home, I'm not, uh, you know, bringing my students with me. Um, but in uh, Antarctica, the kind of personal and the public are sort of necessarily mixed together because you're living with these other people and you're, you know, um, using the same bathroom facilities and you're, um, you know, spending all of your free time with each other as well as your working time. And that kind of exacerbates the situation because it's harder to draw those. You want to be friends with your students, I imagine, if you're in the field. You want to have these connections. But um, the problem is, is when it goes too far. And then there's, and then you become the, the traitor if you break up this kind of work dynamic. I've run out of questions, which is I'm one sorry, of the problems. I... Of, um, <laughs> no, th- that's been a fantastic um, interview. There's so much material there that I think listeners will find really valuable. Um, so grateful for your time and your patience with um, actually getting this online session together. Do you have any any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Um, I suppose that um, yeah, I, I would suppose in a certain way that to talk about the history of, of Antarctica and how the history is still bearing on, on this. Um, one of the big problems with um, the sexual harassment and everything that we see in Antarctica is, I think, is the historic construction that Antarctica is a place for, for heroes and for sort of heroic science 
um, that, you know, people who go there are following in the footsteps of Douglas Mawson or, or whoever, right? Um, and um, this kind of perception of people um, that, you know, to go to Antarctica, you must be this this kind of extreme kind, you know, even if you're a woman, you have to have very good physical fitness and that, you know, you have to do these heroic type feats. Um, this idea that Antarctica is special and to do research in Antarctica means you must be special, um, I think is what contributes largely to these attitudes that, you know, this is a place for men and that women are, you know, intruding on it. Um, like in maybe again, again, about 10 years ago, um, the Natural History Museum in London did a uh, I guess, advertising campaign for an exhibit they were doing about polar exploration. And the campaign was a bunch of little children, like maybe three or four little children, little boys, dressed for sort of winter wear weather, and they had beards superimposed on their faces, um, which is like, I don't know, the sort of implicit, when you picture an Antarctic explorer, it's a man with a beard. Um, it's a person who can grow a beard, which, um, again, uh, not all men can do that. Um, but it's a it's a person who can grow a beard, right? Um, and this idea that the Antarctic is this special place, this special extreme place where you have to go there and do, to, do heroic actions. Um, I think it's what makes Antarctica the... It, it gives Antarctica these problems with sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, like an argument that um, I've put forward before is that after the International Geophysical Year, most people who are in Antarctica are not sledging across the continent. They're, um, you know, in little offices, basically, right? They're, it's an office where you're living with the people that you um, are working with, right? Uh, they're not performing heroic feats. And so how can you then justify not including women in that? You know, like, let's put aside any dispute about whether or not women are physically capable of, of stuff. Um, but like, how can you justify leaving out women when that's not the reality of Antarctic research anymore? The reality of Antarctica is mostly pretty boring from what I understand um, for, much of the, for much of the time you're there. And, uh, well, one way you can do it is by developing a culture that's hostile to women. Um, and, you know, that culture where if, if a woman can't put up with it, she should leave. Um, it keeps Antarctica special for those that get to go. Oh. Sorry, I went on no, a whole no, thing. No, I'm just thinking of um, societal change over time and we've got a long way to go. Thank you again, Professor McCahey, for your time and for your patience. This has been a, a really valuable interview for my series. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Matt, for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. I mentioned in the interview that Professor McCahey is the most prolific author on the matter of sexism in Antarctica that I could find, but that's a misspeak. I reached out to several other authors on the topic in the run-up to episode 106, but no one got back to me. So I should have said that Professor McCahey is the most prolific author on the topic who responded to my contact. In a faint ray of hope that change is finally coming to the National Science Foundation presence in Antarctica, a member of the McMurdo station staff was flown to Hawaii to face charges of assault against a co-worker. Announced on Christmas Eve 2022, 
This might prove a turning point in the sorry history of base staff getting treated like dirt by management. But I'll wait to see if the Assault Advocate program brought into place this Austral summer actually brings about broader long-term change before I celebrate it too vocally. It's at least good that an alleged assault is being investigated instead of swept under the rug. Watch this space. In less encouraging news, in late November 2022, Head of the Australian Antarctic Division, Kim Ellis, told Federal Parliament that in the three and a half years since his appointment, he lacked the internal authority necessary to bring about cultural change within the organisation. He commissioned Professor Meredith Nash's report on sexual harassment within the Australian program, which mapped the scale of the problem, but Ellis claims that he couldn't do anything about the problem it mapped until the report came out in September. To that, I say, fucking boo-hoo. Grasp the nettle and do the verb denoted in the title leader, Kim Ellis. I won't claim that's easy to do, but it's what the nation pays you to do, so do it. At the risk of denting any future employment opportunities in my nation's Antarctic program, I'm going on the record as stating that where you perceive your shortcoming as embarrassing and discomforting, your failure to start making change as soon as you notice the entrenched problems constitutes a national disgrace. I first worked in Antarctica under the New Zealand flag, and while Kiwis are far from perfect exemplars of workplace equity, the state of their Antarctic presence even two decades ago makes the problems presently playing out at Australian stations all the more dire, and yet you claim you couldn't do anything about those problems in spite of holding the highest position in the nation where seeing to the health and well-being of Australians on the ice is part of the very reason you receive payment. You had the external authority and the legal means to follow up on any problems causing any employee under you to feel unsafe in their job. So didems to your claim that a lack of internal authority became a sticking point. I can't think of a single industry in which a lack of internal authority to investigate allegations of abuse might protect any leader at any level from legal repercussions arising from unwarranted harm done to an employee under their leadership. And I don't see that the isolation of Antarctica offers any additional leverage in the matter. I do what I can to change my society from the bottom up. But when our leaders wring their hands as hard as Kim Ellis presently does, it's hard not to despair. If it takes sunlight and national shame to bring about change, I'll take it. But fuck me, I wish someone who sought and achieved power did their bit without having to be forced into action by weight of public and international condemnation. For a leader to come out and openly claim they can't lead makes the title moot and their paycheck void. Given that Kim Ellis was caught trying to carry undeclared alcohol to Antarctica in breach of his own rules back in April 2022, I don't find it at all surprising that he can't lead effectively. It's not internal authority. He lacks the internal fortitude to hold himself to his own stated standards. Fuck Kim Ellis' cowardice and ineptitude, and fuck every predecessor who let the problems extant within the AAD he inherited ride. In a new development helping to break down the crusty old idea that you need to be heroic to visit Antarctica, as discussed in the interview with Professor McKay, YouTube personality Mr. Beast recently camped out on the ice for one of his viral videos. The content's not likely to excite anyone outside Mr. Beast's target audience, as it doesn't feature much other than some young people being cold, digging a hole and climbing a hill, but it does document events that help dent the historical perception that you need big brass balls to go south. 
Mr. Beast named the hill his party made a first ascent up, Mount Shopify. I don't like influences or their output, but the venom this nomenclature garnered from the crusty old brass balls contingent seemed unwarranted, as it ignores similar Antarctic geographic inanities such as Walgreen Coast, which came to us from Bird, Mobile Oil Bay, named by Wilkins, and the Beardmore Glacier, named by Shackleton. Naming things after sponsors is gauche and unimaginative, but it's not new just because young people are doing it. I'm trying to do my bit to combat the problems discussed in this episode. I'm corresponding with McMurdo Station staff present during the 2019-2020 to season, when a dining attendant was sexually assaulted. I'm trying to better understand the situation, so I can publish an episode dedicated to the crime and its fallout. I'm getting a lot of pushback from people invested in sustained silence over the matter, but I feel confident I can navigate the history, share what insights the situation offers, not cause further harm to the victim, and not get my ass sued to ribbons in the process, given the cooperation I've received to date, and the verification I'm getting regarding key points. If you were on-site at McMurdo at the time and think you have something to add, please get in touch. I'm also applying for the role of station leader within the Australian Antarctic Division. I have the requisite experience leading people in remote and challenging circumstances, and I bring to the table what I'm confident constitutes a unique suite of skills and experiences that might appeal to managers seeking an operator able to get the job done with a minimum of hand-wringing excuses as to why I can't lead effectively. I'm publishing this episode in the full knowledge that my condemnation of Kim Ellis likely won't place me in good standing with any selection committee he sits on, but I can assure anyone looking to head south with the AAD that if they fall under my care, I will see to their safety and well-being as my highest priority, regardless of how holding that line affects my popularity. So no, I won't be trying to sneak alcohol south in hopes it might wheedle me into the hearts of problematic old-timers who resent standing policy or my implementation of same. I'm not seeking this role for likes, or coin, or bragging rights. I'm putting my hand up for a difficult job, because I think I can ensure fellow Australians aren't abused and railroaded by bullies and tradition. This episode I give thanks to Lachlan, who impresses the hell out of me every time we meet. Lachlan is the 15-year-old who, at the age of 12, told me that traditions are peer pressure from dead people and I've admired him ever since. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Meersham is part of the problem I'm hoping to prove part of the solution to.